blue line leaves it. Kale McCarr winds, fires, score! Now Rubido, top of the near circle, pass far side, wide open net. What a save made by Philip Grubauer. Just outstanding stuff. I am Grubauer. And Zadorov oh. smash! <laughs> oh my goodness! Yep. What a bone-crushing hit by Nikita Zadorov. And Howard Luck has no idea what day it is, what time zone he's in, and he is slowly making his way towards the bench. Hello and welcome into another edition of Hockey Mountain High, your go-to avalanche podcast. We got a special one for you here today. I am your host, of course, JJ Jerez. With me is Arif Dean. And with us today is our draft prospects guy. He's our NHL draft guru. His name is Tony Ferrari. has his own website dedicated strictly to prospects at DauberProspect.com. Also hosts his own podcast, Dauber's Draft Cast. Tony, thanks so much for joining us, uh, talking a little bit of draft and wrapping up this Stanley Cup final here. Uh, Dallas. <laughs> uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners can uh, relate to that, but I, I think you had that plan, didn't you, Arif? You yeah. told him to do that. A L- little bit. I mean... It made a lot of sense. We were hoping by now that Dallas would have lost, and thankfully, Tampa Bay wrapped it up last night. Um, but on a serious note, this guy's awesome. I met Tony at the World Junior Summer Showcase in Plymouth, Michigan last year in 2019. Uh, it was my first credential with Mile High Sports after that playoff series against the Sharks. And uh, yeah, I met him over at the, at the USA Hockey Arena. He told me he was from Windsor, Ontario. Automatically became friends with him because I grew up in Windsor before Detroit, and uh He's a hockey nerd like you and I, and he loves and watches uh, a lot of prospects. The Windsor Spitfires are right over there. Uh, I don't remember where they play. Do they still play on Wyandotte? No, no. Now they're at the WFCU. They're out near uh, Tecumseh Road a little bit. Oh, nice. Yeah. See, it's been a while. I used to go to the old beatdown arena on Wyandotte right beside Waterworld when I was a kid. Good times. Used to yeah, go the swim. old barn. Used to go swim and then go to a hockey game. That's how I spent my childhood in Windsor. Yeah, well, there you have it. He's coming to us from north of the border here. So, obviously, he has a little animosity towards Dallas. All of our listeners, of course, weren't exactly thrilled to see Dallas in the final. But how about you, Tony, from an outsider's standpoint? Were you a little bit disappointed to see Dallas versus Tampa Bay rather than the Tampa Bay-Vegas matchup I think a lot of us hoped for? Or the Tampa yeah. Bay-Colorado series we all wanted? Yeah, honestly, like my, my big thing with Dallas was that I just didn't want to see them or the Islanders win the Cup because then everyone would start copying them. And I'd have to become a, a football prospect guy because I just couldn't deal with the way the game would change because, man, that slow style of game is just not my thing. I'd much rather watch Colorado or Toronto or Vegas or Tampa like be fast, be exciting, like have a good time while I'm watching hockey. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a good thing that, that they uh, lost, right? You would suck, it would suck to see that style ultimately end up successful. And, and that's the thing. I mean, cheering against Dallas for me wasn't just being the salty avalanche reporter that wanted the avalanche to get there i mean we all wanted it you know nobody can convince me otherwise that the avalanche were the best team in the western conference but it's a war of attrition and you have to be healthy to win a cup and the avalanche just couldn't do that and you know as much as we say that that's bad luck it's something that you have to deal with mckinnon said it over and over again if we were healthy we have to find a way to stay healthy there's no question so even the team now is starting to get over this point of oh it's just bad luck but you know 
aside from that, the, the, the whole thing against Dallas is in the NHL, you often see teams mimic the team that wins the Stanley Cup. You always want to be like that team. I would much rather someone looks at Tampa Bay. It's kind of what we've been doing on the podcast for the last three weeks. I keep bringing up all these names of who the Avs should acquire. And it's one of those things where I would much rather somebody takes a team like Tampa Bay. They have all this firepower and Palat and Point and, and, and Kucherov and Stamkos and Sorelli and uh, I'm probably missing one or two, Tyler Johnson, Yanni Gord. And then you take a team like that and you go out and you acquire rugged defensemen like Luke Shen and Zach Bogosian to just complement your top four, which for them is st- you know star-studded with Hedman and McDonough and uh, Chernak and uh, Sergeyev, our old-fashioned Windsor Spitfires boy. And then you take that kind of a team, you add those rugged defensemen, and you add guys like Blake Coleman, you add guys like Barclay Goudreau, who play a very Matt Calvert type of game, just that feisty, even though they're small, they're they're out there hitting, they're out there playing a physical game. Uh, was it Barclay Goudreau, I think, that fought Matt Martin? He had no, there was no reason for him to drop the gloves with Martin, and he got pummeled, but that's the kind of player you want on your team. And that's the kind of team I'd much rather see guys go out and mimic, and that's the team that I want to see the Avalanche mimic. Yeah, and that's just it. Like, I'd so much rather, like, I'm a Leafs fan, so I, I, there's obviously problems with that roster and the, the, the makeup of that team, but... Like, I'm really you, sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's okay. I, I, I hate myself all the time for it, so <laughs> that's why I watch Colorado late at night. Um, but no, honestly, like, it's a team like Toronto or Colorado, Tampa, Vegas even, these teams play with a lot more speed, a lot more excitement. Like, even Vegas, known for as a, a big, heavy, four-checking team, they're faster. They're more skilled. They're they're a team that uses the the passing east and west to to make the game exciting and, and, and affect the game that way. So watching Dallas be like this really boring, like fourteen shots a game type team, and yeah, sure they are letting up thirty shots a game at times, especially the Tampa. But so many of those shots were from the outside. So many were from the beyond the the hash marks and everything. So it's it's like, man, I just I want this these more exciting teams to win. So I was super happy that Tampa did. I mean, and go Bolts, I, credit to them. I mean, Tampa Bay is a heck of a team, and I, I'm, I'm happy to see them win because it feels right. It feels right to see Tampa Bay come out of this tournament. We don't have the New York Rangers come out and win a Stanley Cup in this weird COVID year. It was somebody that truly deserved it. And, you know, despite what we say about Dallas, it was somebody that in the beginning of the year, before the Bishop injury, before the Jim Montgomery firing, it was somebody that a lot of people thought was going to be a contender. So it made sense. But, you know, it's funny that you brought up the NFL earlier when you made that joke because the league that everybody strives to be like is the NBA. And it's for many reasons. It's not just because of their 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 the way that they empower the players and let them market themselves and, you know, with the social justice issues and just the ability for them to really put their stars' names and faces out there. And obviously their free agency market is the funnest, most banana lands day you'll ever find. But on top of that, it's high-scoring, offensive, and exciting. So in the NFL this year, we saw the Kansas City Chiefs go out and win the Super Bowl. And it was like, great, this is the team that deserves. Patrick Mahomes should be out there throwing 500 yards a game. It shouldn't be the you know the year prior where the Patriots choked the life out of the, the Rams, I believe it was, uh, in the yep. Super Bowl final. Uh, I was going to say St. Louis Rams, but I knew that sounded wrong because good old Stan Kroenke. Um, but... That's what you strive to be like is the NBA and the NFL had their, you know, their best offensively powered team win the stand win the Super Bowl. And now the NHL's had the Tampa Bay Lightning win the win the Stanley Cup. And that's just the way it should be. That's the excitement. It's scoring goals. It's scoring touchdowns. It's scoring three pointers. That's what you want out of your big leagues. And 
I'm happy to see that out of the NHL now with the with the Lightning winning the Cup, and it also makes it easier for you know us as Avalanche reporters and you covering the Maple Leafs and you know following the Maple Leafs like I did when I was a kid and seeing that these teams full of these star-studded offensive forwards may actually have a chance to go out there and beat those defensive teams like the Dallas and the Islanders and before that the Bruins, the Blue Jackets, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's just it. Like I tweeted out this morning, I'm like, there's a lot of people that are com- commending the Tampa Bay Lightning for sticking with their core and not blowing things up. Yep. That that are also saying that the Maple Leafs should blow things up, or yeah, or that, that some of these or some of these other teams should make drastic trades. And I'm like, no, don't. Like, there's a difference between tweaking the guys around you and adding a Barkley Goodrow, adding a Blake Coleman, than than changing your team and taking away from your strengths just to address a weakness that you end up paying more for than you should have in the end of things. So. It, it, I'm really glad Tampa won. It's a testament to them sticking with their core, and I'm stoked about it. Yeah, or you end up trading Ryan O'Reilly for a bunch of spare parts, and now suddenly Jack oh. Eichel's. Yeah, now suddenly Jack Eichel is out there, and I'm not talking about the Avalanche trading him for spare parts. At least the Dorov and yeah. for regional NHL players. I'm talking about the trade that sent him from Buffalo to the Blues for Patrick Berglund, who literally left the NHL and was like mentally not happy with being in Buffalo, and Tage Thompson, who. Supposedly was supposed to be a better prospect, but you know they let guys like Jordan Cairo slip through the cracks and acquire Tage Thompson in- instead, and Vladimir Sabotka. Those were the three big pieces with a draft pick for Ryan O'Reilly, and now Jack Eichel's on the on the on the block. Yeah, it's like you kind of mentioned that a lot of leagues strive to be like the NBA, right? But I think that's what the NHL is so different, and what makes guys like Tony so important is because. The pool of players that come into the NHL is just so much bigger. And a lot of times you don't know what you're going to get. Like, thankfully, JT Comfort worked out. Thankfully, Nikita Zadorov exactly, worked yeah. out. But, right, there's such a big pool of players. So, Tony, for you, is it tough to kind of keep your pulse on the entire world? I mean, that's kind of the biggest thing, right? NBA gets their entire pool of players from the NCAA, basically. Sometimes, um, you know, a high schooler goes and plays pro. But other than that, they know exactly yeah. where to look. But when you got to keep your pulse on the entire entire world you know does that present a challenge challenge in its own I mean it, it's super difficult and, and I'd be lying if I said I was able to watch every game of every player even a significant yeah. amount of every player but like the big thing with me is like I, I have a pretty good team at Dauber Prospects and I'm able to bounce ideas off of of, of the other guys like Yoki Neverline and the guy that helps uh, that does the podcast with me he, he's one of the best guys in Europe for scout in that region so I'm able to kind of use some of what he, he tells me about guys and, and it takes a lot of trust like you have to build up a relationship with with a group of people to to really trust them and, and make sure that they trust you and that you guys can bounce ideas off of each other and I mean we, we have uh, we just had our scouting meeting last weekend and we, it was just over four hours just to get the top 100 nailed down and Jeez. Th- there was a lot of just debate and discussion and, and we were able to kind of really dive into what we think of players and, and despite all of our differences in, in exact ways we grade players whether we favor skating over a shot or a shot over a passing ability um we're able to kind of work together and and come up with a formula and come up with a a way to kind of maybe kind of work together on on a little bit of different things like the way we kind of did the meeting was i kind of told everyone like let's treat this like we are an nhl team We're, we're coming up with our draft list because i've talked to nhl teams and they've told me that they usually come up with 100 120 guys because after about 30 40 every team's draft list is so drastically different that even when you only have 120 guys on your list you're probably going to have guys that don't get drafted. So when we did that, we kind of did the same thing. Whereas once we got towards the end of the rankings, the last 10 picks, we were like, okay, guys, everyone just take a guy and, and put him on the ranking because 
this is the spot where you give your your European scout, hey, take this sixth, seventh round pick for us. Because those guys that we have at 10 or at 90 to 100, they may not get drafted till late in the draft, but those are guys that we personally like and we think are worth the draft pick. And that's how NHL teams do it too. So it's it's a hard job and it's a work in progress. And I have a lot of tools that some of the people in the rest of the public sphere don't have that allow me to kind of break games down into shifts and break games down into different different events that I can kind of get a lot done in a small amount of time. But it's it's a ton of work, but I, I enjoy it. There's a reason I'm up till 1.30 in the morning doing it most nights. We're, we're all hockey nerds, man. It's awesome. Yeah, but I mean, I remember one year I tried to do a whole prospect yeah. scouting, and I spent all summer picking a handful of guys I thought the Avalanche were going to draft. This was Tyson Jost's draft year, and Tyson Jost was nowhere to be found on any of the articles that I wrote, just a bunch of guys that the Avalanche didn't draft, so I got pretty angry about yeah. that and decided never to do it again and rely on guys like Tony. It's funny because you mentioned that you know when you get closer to the end of the draft, you you give the European scouts this green light, like you know what? Who's the guy that you think the, the team should take? And it's ultimately how the NHL does it, and it is. And I'm not gonna remember his name right now. Maybe you will, but I do recall the last draft. The Avalanche took this like six foot eight goaltender in the seventh oh. round, and it was just like that. I, I'm trying to remember his name, and it, I think he was injured this year for most of the year. There was there was something that knocked him out for the season, but he mm-hmm. plays somewhere in Europe, and it was just like that. You know what? Yeah, here's your pick. Go for it. Let's see if, you know, let's throw shit at the wall and see if it sticks kind of thing. Was it Justice and Noonan? No, no, no. no he no, was no. a fourth rounder. It was yeah. it was a different guy. And Noonan's the kid that we're all looking at right now. Like, there's our savior. There's our Kale McCarr on goalie, you know, our, yeah. on goaltending where he's going to be the first guy that's actually going to be homegrown with this team. Yeah, I remember last year when we were at the World Summer Showcase, we, we watched a Noonan kind of take over in, in certain games there yeah. so he was a guy that i spotted early on last year that i was like this this kid's a stud so i mean you guys got a good prospect in him yeah i'm excited for him yeah absolutely fingers crossed he pans out but yeah i wanted to get back to the uh, stanley cup final real quick before we get too deep into to uh prospects which we are about to do here but i wanted to get not only your consensus but kind of the overall feeling up there uh, around windsor and, and i guess canada as a whole as because i know Arif's ready to give gary bettman a, a big fat hug about the way everything went down during these playoffs. How do you guys assess it? What did you guys think about the final product? And did you just overall enjoy the entire playoffs? Yeah, I think, you know what? I'm not a Gary Bettman guy either, but I think I'd give him a big old hug too. I might even give him a wet kiss right on the face. Like it, You're not going to get a Canadian to say anything otherwise. I'm telling you, dude. We wanted our hockey and Bettman made it happen in the middle of a pandemic. We're all going to say the same thing. Sorry, go ahead, Tony. No, that's exactly it, though, right? Like, we all were kind of dying for sports, and we're dying for hockey specifically. So when it came back, like, I was skeptical. I didn't know how it was going to work, and and I I didn't know how well the bubbles were going to work. But the bubbles in both the NBA and NHL were great. They both did a great job. The NHL was fantastic. Um, There was that article, I think you guys touched on it last week, that came out with some of the bubble stuff not being exactly the way it was supposed to be. But, yeah, I, I mean... There, there was so much that had to go into it. There's so many sacrifices that had to be made all around. I think overall, if you were to ask the players, if you were to ask even the stars, the guys that lost out and the, the Avs and all these other teams, I think even they would be like, you know what? It was a really unique experience. It was something really cool to experience. Yeah, there were, there were probably a ton of negatives. You missed your family. You missed your kids. Um, being stuck with, with your, your teammates might not have been your favorite thing in the world all the time, but I mean, these guys probably bonded. These guys were were in a war together. So 
they, they really did a, a good job with it overall in the NHL. I was really happy with the product myself. I mean, there's no way you're going to put together a tournament like that and it's going to be 100% perfect. And that's the reality of it. And everybody knew going into this, and we said this way, way back in June, we said the NHL and the Players Association are not here to, to fight each other on how to make this work. They are angry together. They are upset together. They're going to swallow their pride and make sacrifices together to make this thing that nobody wants to do work. And that's ultimately what they did. Everybody's favorite grandpa, Rick Bonus, yesterday was asked, or maybe it was two days ago, he was asked, uh, what are you going to remember from this bubble? He said, absolutely nothing. Like it, the experience sucked. Is there any positives out of it? He's like, no, we're just here to play hockey. And that's just the reality is the NHL and the NBA kind of did it too, except they had some cool extra things in the NBA. I would have loved to be in the NBA bubble more than the NHL one. I'll, I'll tell you that for sure. Uh, but uh, as as a whole, the bubble was not meant to be something that is going to come out with lasting positive memories. It was more or less something to take the NHL players and literally turn them into an EA Sports athlete where you turn on the Xbox, the players play a game, and then you turn it off and they just disappear. And that's what they were doing in the hotel room. There was no life outside of hockey. And that's why the Tampa Bay Lightning... Uh, are, are going to remember forever that they busted their ass off in one of the hardest and most unique situations to win a Stanley Cup. Uh, but on that note, before we move on, I got to say that the damn Lightning need to stop winning a cup because in 2004, they won the cup and there was no hockey for the rest of that calendar year. And in 2020, they're winning the cup and there's going to be no hockey in the rest of this calendar year. So they need to stop winning the cup because their Stanley Cup hangover goes for months. Oh man, I seen you tweet that earlier and I'm like, Oh man, that's actually true. It's weird. God damn it. Yeah, it's just one of those things like why why is it this team twice where they get to enjoy the Stanley Cup for like literally the next 6 months before hockey comes back? That was like I remember seeing somebody tweet back when Kale McCarr uh you know, back when the uh, Hockey Diversity Alliance and and they just took the pause for racism there. Kale McCarr had three assists the night before, right? Well, he also had three assists the, the night, night before they paused yeah. for COVID. So was, why is every time Kale McCarr gets three assists, the, the, the league stops? As soon as he gets hot, the league stops and gives Quinn Hughes a chance to try to steal his award. And then I wanted to correct you. I think everybody's favorite grandpa has to be Tyson Jost's grandpa, right? That's Yeah, that's true. Everybody's favorite papa is going to be Can't forget about bonus. him. But looking at the Stanley Cup final, Tony... Um, obviously you've had your finger on the pulse of prospects for a while. Who's a, who's a guy that you got to watch in these finals that somebody you've been kind of keeping an eye on since he was a prospect and you're just kind of, I guess, proud to see the way they've blossomed. Well, I, I feel like I have to me mention Sergachev cause he, he played in Windsor. Hell uh, yes. I, I got to watch him for all his years in Windsor and, and he was such a good player here. Um, it just it gave you that little like local pride like despite he's a russian kid and he posed with all the russians afterwards and stuff but right away i was like yeah spitfire won the cup like you just kind of hope like have have a little sense of pride for that local kid and then i mean yol kiviranta the the kid for the stars i i, I don't know where he came from like I, I i'd be lying to you if i said he was neither do we yeah i'd be lying to you as a prospect guy saying yeah, no, I knew he was kind of calm. He was, he was definitely going to score a hat trick and, and secure the win for them. But no. On Michael Hutchinson. Yeah. Oh, man, Michael Hutchinson. I know all about Michael Hutchinson. <laughs> but no, like he, he came out of nowhere. And that's the kind of story that you love in the playoffs. When, when a guy just kind of shows up, plays hero, and, and he becomes a storyline. And that's what he did in these playoffs. And, and that was really fun to watch, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, there 
Sergachev is the easy one because he was a high draft pick. He played for the Windsor Spitfires. Uh, he partook in a, in a Memorial Cup. He was one of the Russians that made it over here, and well, one of the Europeans in general that played north, you know, north of the border and played North American hockey as a prospect. So I guess my question is: Is it easier as a prospects guy, as a draft guru? to scout, not necessarily local to the point where it's Sergachev right up the road from where you live, but someone that plays in the OHL, the WHL, the Q, even the U.S. or the uh, uh, the Alberta Junior Hockey League for Kale McCarr where he came out of, or the BCHL or, uh, you know, the Saskatchewan League. Is it easier to, you know, to track prospects that play on this side of the world rather than out in Europe, not just from a, from the sense of, the time zone that you're in and being able to watch them at a reasonable time. But is it easier to get a gauge for the game that they play because it's a North American game? It's on North American ice surfaces. Basically, is it easier to track a Sergachev and a Landeskog who played? Um, remind me where Landeskog played. Saginaw. Kitchener. Kitchener, Kitchener Rangers. Bingo. Uh, swing swing and a miss. miss. <laughs> yes, there we go. Uh, is it easier to track somebody like that as compared to a prospect like Miko Rantanen who played in Finland? Or I believe William Nylander played in Finland before making the you know before getting drafted yeah the thing with those guys is is i think there's a unique difficulty with both with evaluating both areas because when when you're evaluating these north american kids who are primarily playing junior hockey there's very very rare times where i don't think it ever really happens where they play men's hockey as a as a north american born player unless you're like an austin matthews who goes over to europe but when you're when you're watching these guys and evaluating these guys you're watching them against guys their age. You're watching them against 16, 17, 18, 19 year old players. So you, you can see their dominance in, in you can see the way they play against guys that should be at their level. So if a guy like Lafreniere is just dominating the dominating the league and, and dominating on every shift it seemed at times and just generating chances, then that's a guy that you, you automatically know, okay, he's better than this league, he's ready for the next step. And after Lafreniere, you, you see a guy another guy like Quentin Byfield who who has all those physical tools and, and you can tell that he's dominating the game, but you, you can tell that he still needs to learn to process certain things a little bit faster and, and really truly dominate at all aspects of the game at the junior level. So you evaluate guys like that a little bit differently, despite the fact that they're in the same league. And then when you go to European guys, you look at a guy like Anton Lundell this year or Lucas Raymond. And those are two guys who kind of trended differently on, on draft boards this year with, with Lundell kind of rising up boards a little bit with how competent he was at the, the men's pro level over there. And he, he had a good role. He was playing third line minutes most nights and he, he was showing that he could sustain defensive play and sustain being a, a contributor offensively, despite not putting up massive totals. He, he was doing a really good job on a, on a rate based statistical no, uh, year compared to guys like Line A and Barkov and, and, and former guys that have played in Finland like that. Whereas Lucas Raymond, it was a little bit harder because he did play on a really stacked team in Forlunda and he got barely any minutes this year or last year, sorry. And, and now that this year he's, he's got a bit of a bigger role and his, the season started over in, in the SHL this year, he's putting up points. He, ha, he has two points in two games and in the preseason he was dominating. He was having multi-point efforts. So the, the biggest difference is, is – watching their competition and in knowing when to kind of really dive into okay how much is this guy going to affect the game if he's doing this against men versus what he did against juniors last year the year before you know it's, it's a great point you mentioned that and the reason why i asked that question is because you know and not you know we are an avalanche podcast but austin matthews he was drafted first overall but he decided to choose to go and play in switzerland against men rather than you know 
play in the NCAA. I believe DU was one of the teams he was looking at at one point. Yep. Uh, so he decided to go from the U.S. National Development Program in, in Michigan, and he went out to Switzerland. He made money doing it, and he played against men, and he did a damn good job. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think his coach was Bob Hartley there too. Uh, cra- no, cra- the Canucks old coach. Um, Mark Crawford, the the Crawford, other former yes. Avalanche guy. Yeah. Yes, I, I was trying I was trying to remember which Avalanche coach it was, but yeah, Mark Crawford coached him in Switzerland. So it's just you you know it's it's interesting that you say that because over here they're playing against other guys his their age and ultimately dominating at that level. But in Europe, you, you don't you won't necessarily see him dominate unless it's a talent like Matthews. But they're playing against men. And, uh, you know, it makes su- the difference is so vast in terms of the age and the physical maturity, because even you, you brought up Quinton Byfield, the kid who's going to go either two or three this year, most likely. And uh, Byfield is nearly an entire year younger than Lafreniere. And that makes a bigger difference than people think. So when you take somebody like that and you just bring them one year down from an 18 and 19 year old playing junior hockey, and then you take somebody like that and you throw them in Europe, literally playing against men, men that used to play in the NHL. It makes a big difference, and I just thought it was always interesting, so I was just always curious what you thought of that. Yeah, and, and the big thing is that I, I wish more players could go and do what Austin Matthews did. Uh, he kind of had the perfect situation where he was a little bit older, so he was 18 when he was able to go over there. Um, he, he was yeah. old for the draft class, so he was kind of in Lafreniere's situation this year, but he wasn't a Canadian player that had his rights owned by a CHL team. And that really throws a wrench into things because even a year like next year where Quinton Byfield – probably isn't quite ready for the nhl but honestly he's probably going to be too dominant at the ohl level europe would be a great option or the ahl would be a great option but yeah. the, the chl rules really restrict that and, and they don't allow for a player to make that transfer the, all, all this talk's got me excited we got to get into this year's draft right i mean not only what's going to happen at the top of the draft but what the avalanche are going to get into but before we get into that guys i got to tell you about DraftKings sportsbook week three of football is in the books and now it's time to review the tape and get ready for week four there's no better place to get in on all the action than with DraftKings sportsbook america's top rated sportsbook app To add to the excitement of Week 4, DraftKings Sportsbook is bringing back their can't-miss offer. If you haven't tried DraftKings Sportsbook yet, head to the App Store right now because you don't want to miss this. DraftKings Sportsbook is giving all new users the chance to win $1 into $100 when they bet on any team. That's right. You can place a $1 bet on any team, and if that wins, you cash a cool Benjamin, how could you pass that up for the third week in a row? Yeah. Don't worry. If football isn't for you, DraftKings is giving you all basketball fans 200% profit boosts on any basketball market once you sign up. DraftKings is safe, reliable, and secure, making it easy for you to deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code MHS when you sign up to get this can't-miss offer. Pick any team during week four, bet $1 on them, and win $100 if they win. That's $1 to win $100 when you use promo code MHS during sign-up for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Colorado only, profit boost terms and conditions and eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. I got to say, Tony, sorry, man. That's a Colorado only offer, so I don't know what you guys use out in Canada, but it's probably something that spells it with an OU because God bless Canada. Uh, but, you know, I hate I, I hate that you brought up the NBA because the last time we were recording, we were talking about the Nuggets having a shot at getting back in that series with the Lakers. 
And then Anthony Davis sunk a buzzer beater in that game too. And uh, and lost all my DraftKings money. And lost all your DraftKings <laughs> money. But don't fret. I haven't used my 200% boost yet. So maybe we can bet on the Lakers to probably win what they're expected to win, unfortunately. Well, I mean, all right, Tony, time to get... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, JJ, are you, you going to put all that big money down on the Lakers this year? Or what are you going to do with that? How big a bet are you going to make? Oh, man, I can't. I can't bet on the Lakers now after they they broke my heart. I think I'm done on the NBA. I'm sticking to just NFL. My parlays have been killer lately, and I'm I like European soccer. That's that's my money maker. Tony, I don't know if you listened to last week's podcast. JJ hit a ten team parlay in the NFL last week, and said he won. I forget what you said, like sixty two. He said I won sixty two on it, and I kind of like froze up because I'm like, holy crap! Because he said it was like plus thirty something hundred odds or something, and I'm like, did this dude just win sixty two G's? And apparently he put like a dollar and a half on it and won sixty two bucks, and I was really upset. Yeah, that's kind of what I was referencing because I remember I was listening to it at work, and I'm just sitting there doing my thing on the computer, and all of a sudden he's like, I won sixty two, and I'm like, what? And I was just <laughs> waiting for it, and then yeah, it was just nothing. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry to mislead everybody, and then you rained all over my parade, didn't you, Arif? But getting into this year's draft, obviously, there's a, we touched on it a little bit there. But I'm curious, since you have, again, your finger on the pulse of these guys, who is somebody that maybe is going to slip and maybe in that top 10, if not a little bit higher, um, that maybe just hasn't been talked about too far yet? I think a guy like Anton Lindell, who I referenced earlier, the defensive center out of Finland, he gets a lot of flack because he doesn't have the same kind of flash that a lot of the players at the top of the draft, like Quentin Byfield, Alexis Lafreniere, Lucas Raymond, Tim Stutzla. He he plays more of that simple game. Uh, realistically, he projects as a second-line center, but his floor is kind of a really good third-line center. Um, there's there's a chance that he becomes a, a Ryan O'Reilly-type player at the next level, and and if he can get that goal scoring touchdown, because when he gets behind a shot, like he's got a really, really good shot. Um, I think he's, he's a big guy. He's got the size already. Um, he outside of Lafreniere, realistically, he's probably the most NHL ready player. But there, there's been so much talk about all the upside of these other guys that he seems keeps seeming to uh, float down some draft lists. Like we, we're, we're releasing ours tomorrow. Uh, it'll probably be out by the time this podcast's out. So, um, he's actually on 10th on our list and I started arguing for him to go at five because I really love this kid. Um, I think he's the kind of guy that you draft him and you have a second line center for sure. And then if he hits you, you could have that, like I said, Ryan O'Reilly type player who, who really kind of anchors down that top line or, or if he's your second line center, you're set. That means your first line center is a stud, like maybe Nathan McKinnon. But um, I, I think he's probably a little bit out of the, the avalanches range. I could see him falling in the 10-15 range, but he, he's a guy I really, really like this year. You know what? It, it's great that you said that because, for once, the Avalanche are not sitting here looking at a top pick. And, hell, even last year, their pick, even though they went exactly as far in the playoffs as they did this year, making it Game 7 and losing by one goal in that second round, aside from the fact that they had that number 4 overall pick because of the highway robbery of a Matt Duchesne trade, Alex Newhook was still a 16th overall pick. And this year, the Avalanche are picking 25th. So it's great to hear that they're not the team that we have to sit here and talk about at the top of the draft. That that draft promise portion of this franchise is gone, at least for the you know for the foreseeable future. And now it's talking about who they can sign and who they could trade for. Granted, they still need these high draft picks to 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 become NHL players because once McKinnon and Landeskog and McCarr and all these guys get their new deals. 
you need guys on entry level deals to offset that. It's you know it's the same issue the Toronto Maple Leafs are dealing with. You need a guy like Nick Robertson, uh, everybody's favorite left winger, as Steve Dangle calls him, a defenseman. Mm-hmm. You need somebody like that in your lineup making eight or nine hundred thousand dollars to offset the Tavares and the Matthews and the Marner deals. Uh, but speaking of Lundell. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds a lot like Sean Monaghan when he was drafted. He was that guy that was NHL ready, didn't necessarily have the highest ceiling, but he was pretty much bang on as someone that was going to make it to the NHL. You know, in, in the same draft year where Seth Jones and Nathan McKinnon and Druin and Barkov were taken, people always talked about Sean Monaghan being NHL ready, and that's kind of what it sounds like you're saying Lundell is going to be. Yeah, and that, that's actually a really good comparison. I think the big difference there, though, is is Anton Lindell has legit selkie potential defensive play as well. So he, he's he got that shot that could could realistically, if he's with a good playmaker, be a, about a 30-goal scorer if he if he hits his ceiling. But I, I think the defensive game really separates him. And, and I mean, Sean Monaghan's not a terrible defensive player, but Anton Lindell is, is a, probably going to be a lot closer to Ryan O'Reilly or even a vintage Patrice Bergeron level defensively, even if he doesn't quite get to the offensive levels that those guys are. You know, and I'm going to mention the weird comparison here because I'm a hockey nerd and I remember things like this, but the Calgary Flames gave Ryan O'Reilly an offer sheet back in that 2013 season when the old-fashioned Shermanator was a GM of the Avs. And uh, good times, good times back in the glory days of this franchise. Uh, But when that happened and the Avalanche matched the deal, if the Avalanche had not matched that deal and Ryan O'Reilly ended up going to Calgary, the draft pick that was used to take Sean Monaghan would have been part of the compensation, would have been a first and a third so the Avs could have ended up with Sean Monaghan rather than Ryan O'Reilly in that 2014 year when when Patrick Waugh basically uh, made him the player that he is today that played as a left winger with Matt Duchesne that season. Instead, Zadorov, Comfer, uh, whatever the hell happened to A.J. Greer these last two years, a uh, couple of draft picks, so on and so forth. Uh, so it's just one of those what-ifs that I always like to play is what if the Avalanche didn't match that offer sheet and ended up with Sean Monaghan and Ryan O'Reilly would have ended up in Columbus because the Flames didn't realize that he was going to have to go on waivers because he played in the KHL. Yeah, that was going to be the thing I brought up. Is is The thing that blows my mind about that is they just ignored the fact that he had to go on waivers. They didn't know. I, I can't get over that. And he would have ended up in Columbus because they were the last place team at the time. And it's it's always hilarious when in, when a GM and his entire staff doesn't know a rule. Uh, it always makes me laugh because, you know, those things slip through the cracks. But you know what? Let's 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 do this. This has been a lot of fun, and I love talking about this stuff. And Tony, you and I can go on about this forever. And JJ's just sitting here watching me be the nerd and hockey guy that I am. And you know, he's not too far off from me. Hey, I love it. I'm here to I'm here to drive yeah. the show. If you guys are if you guys are taking over, that's good content. That hey, I don't I don't have to pull words out of my brain. Yeah, but I I'm gonna play host for a second here. I just mentioned that the Avalanche are going to be picking 25th overall. Uh, before we get into that, I'm going to mention something that's a little unique about this year's draft. Uh, the Avalanche, if this was a draft format like it was every or like it's been every year, the Avalanche would have been picking 24th overall because usually when the NHL puts these ranking together, the top four, the, the bottom four picks in the draft are in, in each round of the draft go to the four teams that made it to the West to the conference finals. So Tampa, Dallas, the Islanders, and uh, Vegas, I believe in that order. Vegas and the Islanders are switched. Those are your 31, 30, 29, 28. And then in reverse order, usually what happens is the division leaders 
So teams like St. Louis and, and Washington and teams like that will make up the next picks and then it'll go in reverse order up until you get to the draft lottery stuff at the bottom, you know, the Rangers and, and Detroit and Ottawa and all that, whoever won the draft lotteries, it'll go in reverse order based off of standings. But because of the return to play format and because of the fact that when the NHL returned to play, they sort of, you know, they, they, they did away with the division winners and just went based off of conference standings. So for example, the the four round robin teams in the West were St. Louis, Dallas, Vegas, and Colorado. Dallas was the fourth team in that, and obviously the third team from the Central. If it, if they had gone based off of divisions, Edmonton would have been a round robin team. Dallas would have had to play the Blackhawks in the in the in the play in round, and you know that's a alternate universe as well. What if Edmonton was guaranteed a playoff spot, and what if Dallas had to go through the Blackhawks, who ultimately upset the Oilers? Regardless, because of that, the Washington Capitals being a division leader did not matter. So the Avalanche, because they had more points than the Capitals in the playoffs or in the regular seasons, excuse me, are picking 25th overall this year instead of 24th. So that's something to always remember. If the Capitals end up selecting a player at 24, that becomes way better than whoever the Avalanche take at 25. We can always sit there and say, what if the pandemic didn't change that format and the Avs were able to get that guy at 24? But with that being said, that's just the weird thing I learned today. It was really interesting, but it's one of the many things that make this year unique. With that being said, the Avalanche hold the 25th pick in the draft, and then they don't pick again until the 75th pick, which was the Toronto third rounder, part of the Kadri and Barry swap. With that 25th pick, who do you think the Avalanche should be looking at and might be looking at? Well, there's a lot of ways that the Avalanche can go because they've got a really good prospect pool already. Um, they don't necessarily need to really focus on one one area of, ne- of need like s- some other teams, especially in this range. They start to go on need. Um, I think that I think yeah. the Avalanche are in a good spot, though, because if they, they really like a guy like Hendricks Lapierre, there, there's talk of him being a top 10 talent in this draft class. Yeah. And the fact that he's had a few injuries this year, some neck issues and some concussion issues, th- there's definitely concern there. So e- even on our list, he's at 26 on our list right now, actually. So he's right in that range. Uh, the 25th ranked guy on our list right now is Caden Gooley, the defenseman out of Prince Albert in the WHL, uh, a big mobile defenseman. He, he loves to hit. He loves to really finish along the boards. And, and he's maybe the best defender in this entire draft class at just stopping transitions and, and then like halting any offense from, from even entering the offensive zone. So he, he's really good at that, but he has a lot to work out in, in other areas of his game. Um, he's a really good skater. He's, he's good in transition, but the actual in-zone defense and in-zone offense are kind of where he struggles. Um, another player that I really like in this range that I think could re- that the Avalanche could really fit is, is John Jason Paterka. He's a, a winger out of Germany. He, he, he was awesome this year. I, I loved watching him. He's one of these guys that he has an extremely high energy level. He's always going 100%. He, he's a buzzsaw out there on the ice. And he's got enough finishing ability and he's got a good enough shot that he can be a, a legitimate goal scoring threat on, on any line. He, he's a guy that can kind of play up and down the lineup. Um, I don't know if you necessarily want him on your first line, but if you need a guy to just go in, work hard and, and basically be a better version of Zach Hyman, this is the guy to do it. Because if you put him on a line with, say, McKinnon and Rantanen, that's going to be the most difficult line in the NHL to play up against just for the fact that you have those two guys with the crazy amount of skill. They both play with a lot of power. They're both hard to play against in general. And then you have J- John Jason Paterka flying in, just hammering guys in corners because that's what he does. Um, he's not the biggest guy. He's not going to like go out and murder people, but he's going to make sure that 
whoever's on the ice knows he's on the ice. Uh, he's 5'11", almost 200 pounds. He's playing in the Austrian league right now, um, and he, he's tearing it up there. I think he's like, I think through two games, he's got four points. Um, he, he's not necessarily the most offensive guy, but if you put him with offensive linemen or offensive line mates, he's going to be more than capable of chipping in. Um, there's a lot of guys in this range that they that the Avalanche could really use. Sounds like he plays with a lot of fire, which is something I've been saying that's exactly what the Avalanche needs. Somebody who's not going to get pushed around and, and might even do some of the pushing around. But however, the 5'11 aspect, yeah, that's how tall I am. So I, I don't really like that, to be honest with you. Give me a guy who might have a little bit more size and even might be coupled with some of that offensive skill. Because I like a forward for the Avalanche right now, thinking about years ahead. They're rich in defense. So... I think this team needs a big guy who can also bury it. Is there anybody on, like man. that in the in the uh, in the twenty fifth range? We're, we're here talking about mimicking the Tampa Bay Lightning, and you want a giant? How many giants? Did, I'm just kidding. Go go ahead, Tony. <laughs> no, and actually, to be completely honest, this isn't the draft to get the big guy in. Um, there, there's a few bigger defensemen, and, and there's a couple of big wingers. But if you're if you're looking for a big winger, the guy that I think might fall to the to the Avalanche's spot is Noel Gundler. Um, realistically this guy's probably a top 10 maybe top 12 talent but there, there's some inconsistency issues and there, there were some attitude issues with his, with his u17 coach a couple years ago but by all regards this kid's a stud i he's older for the draft class he's an october 2001 birthday but he's 6'2 175 he's filling out his frame and this kid's got a wicked shot um it, he's one of those guys that you can just put on a line and he's not necessarily going to be the guy that that plays really great defensively or, or really puts in a full effort defensively but he's a guy that can more than willingly bang against the wall he, he wins the puck battles really really consistently for a guy that has an effort issue and the biggest thing with him is he just needs to pump his feet skate a little bit harder because he, he's got all the talent in the world like i said he's probably a top 12 talent in this draft class but there, there's a lot of rankings that have him late in the 20s. Um, we have him at 19. In the, the, I've seen rankings with him out of the first round. And a lot of that comes down to the inconsistencies in his work ethic. Uh, I, I'd more than willingly take a chance on him anytime, probably after 15, 16. So if he does fall to that avalanche pick, he's a guy I'd love to add to that prospect group that they have there. Sweet. I have two questions for you. So the first one I'm going to start with is you mentioned, uh, is it John Jason Paterka? Yeah, so John Jason Paterk is a German forward, and Tim Stutzla is going to go top three in this draft as well. And it's it's really interesting that these Germans are coming out, and like Finland, they seem to be suddenly churning out all these forwards and all these NHL-ready players. There's another guy that I've read about that may go in the first round that's also German, Lukas Reichel. Where do you see him going, and is that someone that could possibly fall to the avalanche? Well, with Lukas Reichel, I kind of look at, at him as the, the opposite side of the coin to, to John Jason Paterk. Paterka's the guy that needs a little bit more refinement in his development. He, he still needs to work on some of the, the smaller details of his game, but the energy level, the shot, the 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 will to just burn and use that fire, like you said, that that's John Jason Paterka's game. Lucas Reichel's a little bit more of a, a tactical, smart player who who doesn't necessarily have all the the physical tools that John Jason Paterka has, but he's a, he's a smooth skater. He's not necessarily explosive but he's smart. He, he really drives play up the ice. And, and that's the thing I like about him. Uh, we have him a little bit higher on our rankings than, than John Jason Paterka, but he's at 24 actually. So right in that same range that we're talking about for the uh, Colorado avalanche. And he's a guy that I think the big difference with him and Paterka is like I said, with Paterka, you have to put him on a line. 
and he's going to play to his teammates. So if you put him with offensive teammates, he's going to play with those guys. Whereas I think Lucas Reichel's a guy that you can put in your middle six and he's going to be an offensive player in that middle six. Um, he can play center. I don't know if he, he really uh, transitions to that at the next level, but I, I think he's a guy that you can rely on safely to be reliable at both ends of the ice. Uh, he's excellent in transition. He gets the puck up the ice efficiently. He's got really good hands. And, and the thing is, he likes to throw the puck to the middle of the ice. Even when there's not necessarily a play that, play to be made, that if he's getting rid of the puck, it's generally to the slot. Maybe it goes off somebody. Maybe it creates a bounce in front of the net. And, and there were a number of times this year where I saw that happen. So he's a guy that I really like for that uh, Colorado range as well. Um, those two Germans are a ton of fun to watch. And, and like you said, German, German hockey's kind of been on the rise. Uh, the last Olympics in 2018 without the NHLers, they actually finished second in the Olympics. Um, yep. their, their world junior teams been a ton of fun to watch more cider, uh, uh, Dominic yes. Bach. There, there's a ton of really good players. So, um, I don't think there's really any big names coming up for the 2021 draft, but the, the, the German hockey factory started to open and, and they're going to start churning out more guys with these guys getting to the NHL and really putting on a show. You know, it's great because uh, they're they're ultimately a soccer country, but it, it they're they're an athletic bunch. They're an athletic race. And, and, and it's great for to see NHL players finally coming out of that league because it is going to be a lot of fun to watch. Uh, all these Germans obviously take the NHL by storm. Morvitz Sider obviously is one that went really high in the draft last year that sort of came out of nowhere, but Steve Eisenman kind of has a method to his madness, and it's looking more and more like he's he's got the right idea with that pick. Uh, regarding Lucas Reichel, it's, it's, you know, it's it wouldn't be a big issue if his, if his game doesn't translate from junior hockey or from, from playing in Germany to the NHL as a center. Thanks to your Toronto Maple Leafs, the Avalanche are good at center at the top two lines, so... Uh, I just want to, to just want to rub a little salt in the uh, in, in the wound there. Just, um, just in case he's listening, I miss you, Naz. He's he's a hell of a dude, and everybody knows all the fun stuff I've done about him this year. Oh, he's but, listening. Oh, he's absolutely listening. There's there's no way he's not. I mean, um, Mile High Sports. I wanted to talk something. Uh, Arif just touched on how Steve Eiserman kind of has a method and and really kind of shows some trends here and there. Are, do you ever notice teams? display trends in their picks can you kind of almost feel like oh this guy would be a perfect fit for toronto for example or and if so you know do you kind of see anybody anybody from the avalanche uh, i guess do you see them kind of have a similar trend and what's that guy kind of look like well see th- there's definitely teams that have trends um the ottawa senators are a team that for whatever reason they love guys that are going to north dakota <laughs> they, their prospect pool is li- littered with guys that are, are playing at north dakota um, the New Jersey Devils are pretty pretty commonly drafting Ottawa Ottawa sixty seven guys, so I wouldn't be shocked if if at in the top ten they they end up being the team that jumps up and drafts Jack Quinn, even though that's probably not a pick mm, yeah, I make. I, there. I, I remember I remember seeing you tweet uh, about that. Yeah, so there there are definitely teams that have trends, uh, and then you can even just look at stylistic trends. Um, since Dubas has taken over, the Toronto Maple Leafs have more than willingly drafted guys that are a little bit undersized and, and heavy on skill. You look at a guy like Nick Abruzzi last year and. You, you, a lot of teams probably didn't have him on their draft board, but Toronto drafted him and he had a great season. Um, as for Colorado, they don't really have a, a, a trend. They don't really have a, a style of player they like drafting. They're, I always find that Colorado's draft picks are just guys I like. And, and I, I think that's a testament to the way their scouting staff has worked. And, and they really seem to go with the best player available type uh, draft strategy. I mean, you look at last year and, and you could have easily justified not taking Bowen Byram at that fourth overall pick. But they made the judgment that he was the best the best player available at the time, and 
I, you look a year later, and I, I don't think it's a bad pick. Like, no, uh, Bowen Byram had a really good year this year. Um, he struggled at the start, but he really came on in the second half, especially after the World Juniors. He really seemed to take a step up. And, I, I mean, as the injuries were piling up, I was really hoping I, we'd at least see him get a game maybe with the with the Avs in the playoffs here. But uh, it didn't happen. But that's kind of just the way the Avs have always done it. I, I feel like since Sackick's taken over, he's just done a really good job of going, this player's good, I'm taking him. And even if maybe he, like like I said, Bone Byram, I, I think I had him two spots lower on my rankings. But they, they identified the player they wanted and they took him. And, and I don't think I look back at their picks and, and been negative about them, really. That Alex Newhook pick was a home run, for, in my opinion, last year. So I think the Avs are just good at drafting in general. Yeah, and I, I've seen them. And, and it's funny you say that because for so many years they weren't. And, you know, the only trend that I can see from the Avalanche, and it's – it's not even a trend that I can attest to just Joe Sackett because he wasn't the GM, you know, for some of these picks. But the Avalanche seemed to love that center that has a very Chris Drury type of feel to him. Or even a forward in general, that guy that you say, this is a high character guy that might wear the C one day. When they took Landeskog, that's all they talked about was this guy's, you know, all these guys, all the, all the, all the big draft guys in the TSN and the Sportsnet guys all said that Landeskog is the type of guy that one day is going to have a C on his jersey. It took less than 12 months he had to see on his jersey. Tyson Jost has, you know, even though he's not panning out to be that player, when they were se- when they selected him, it was Tyson Jost from North Dakota who wants to be like Jonathan Taves, who wants to be that center with the high character. And, you know, one day he's going to have a C on his jersey. It was the same thing with Ryan O'Reilly. Those 200-foot defensive uh, centermen that can pitch in offensively, very a, a very Chris Drury feel to it. But it's high character guys that you can say one day – they're going to wear a C, you know, they're going to have a C on their jersey. That's kind of the only trend I've seen with the Avalanche. But other than that, I mean, I agree with you. They took Miko Ranton. They took this big finish forward. Then they took Tyson Jost uh, and, uh, and you know, completely different kind of guy at 10th overall. Alex Newhook is this offensive weapon who's have, who had a hell of a year and looks to be a, a very home run pick. They obviously took Makar and Byron both at 4th overall. So it seems to kind of be all over the place. But that's the one thing that I've always seen is Colorado wants to fill their locker room with high character guys uh, just to avoid having what they had in 2013 when J.S. Jaguar came out and said that these guys are more worried about their Vegas trip than they are about playing hockey. And you just don't want to have that happen anymore in that locker room. Yeah. And a guy that I think fits that mold a little bit this year is Dylan Holloway out of Wisconsin. Um, he had a rough year at Wisconsin. That entire Wisconsin team was a, a bit of a dumpster fire this year. Cole Caulfield, Alex yeah. Turcott both played on it. And there, there was really high expectations, and they just didn't live up to it. But Dylan Holloway is a guy that kind of fits that can, mold. Can I stop you for just two seconds? Yeah. I'm really sorry to cut you off. Who coached at Wisconsin? Uh, Tony Granato. Does that sound familiar to the 2004 Avalanche? Oh, I know Tony Granato very well. I, <laughs> actually, during the lockout, he was coaching uh, my rival high school, him and Quinville. Really? And guess who knocked him out of the playoffs? Your boys. That a boy. Yeah, sorry. Go on. Really? Because it's, it's, just, it's just funny to hear about Tony Granato having all this skill and uh, obviously having a season that didn't end up the way it should have. It reminds me of the 04 Avalanche. But sorry, go on. Oh, no, man. That's Holloway. exactly it. That's exactly it, though. Like, th- their structure this year was was terrible at times. Like, I-, I made a joke the other day that when I watched the Wisconsin Badgers this year, I wanted to pull my hair out, and I don't have any. <laughs> so, like, it's it's that's just how they- they've been this year. But Dylan Holloway is a guy that I think he has – he he's got a really high-end motor. He- he's got a little bit more skill in-, in-, in finish than a guy like John Jason Paterka. And he's been falling down draft boards because of that that Wisconsin factor. Teams are a little bit afraid of him. I, I talked to a scout recently who said, I, I want to take him and I want him to go in the top 15, but 
the issue is we don't know if the player he was this year is the player he is or if it's the player that he was last year. And the problem with last year is he was playing in, in junior A hockey in Canada. So he wasn't even playing major junior. So you don't know if that's even the player he is really. So there's a lot of risk with him, but he's that guy that every time you talk to to anyone that knows him, he, he's got a ton of character. He plays that 200-foot game. He's more than willing to really just buzz up and down the ice. He's got a little bit of that Tyson Jost kind of factor kind of coming out of his draft year where teams were really high on the kid because he's a good kid. And, and Dylan Holloway's got that, but I think he's got more skill than Jost had coming out of his draft year. Like Dylan Holloway is a guy that on a lot of draft boards – there are t- teams still that have him in the top 15, top 12. So if he d- he is a guy that falls down to the Colorado Avalanche, he'd be a perfect pick for them. Let's look a little bit deeper, if you will. Um, I just want to know a guy who you expect in the, one of the deeper rounds, not necessarily for the Avalanche, but just somebody you think is going to slip maybe down to the third, fourth round that you think it might actually make an impact one day. So I'll give you a couple guys here because Dylan Peterson from the US NTDB team is one of my favorite players. He, he's got the, the big frame. He's 6'4", 200 pounds. He skates really, really well. He's fast. He's got good edges. He's agile. And, and I felt like the biggest problem with him this year was he was stuck on the third line on that national development team program. And oftentimes he was without Thomas Bordelow. He was both without Ty Smolenic, Luke Tuck. Or, or even Brett Berard. There, there were so many games where, and this is nothing against a guy like Landon Slager, but he, he he's the best player that Dylan Peterson was playing with a lot of times. And as much as Landon Slager is a really good defensive two-way player at a junior level who who can kind of plan your penalty kill and be that bottom six like energy guy, Dylan Peterson's a guy that was setting up plays. He's, he's a playmaking center, and he didn't have anyone with him to finish. So there were so many times where I I look back through my notes and in almost every game that I, I went to of the national team, it was Dylan Peterson, great chance, nothing nothing on the other end or, or player player whiffs on the puck. It it really sucks that he he didn't get the kind of opportunity with those guys in the top six that he maybe should have because he he's a really good skilled player that generated chances. His shot differential rates were pretty good. And he's excellent in transition. Like he's, I said, he's got that big body. He transitions the puck really well because he's he's fast on his, on his skates. So being six foot four and that fast is really intimidating. Backs off defenses a lot. And, and another guy I really like is is Evan Veerling. He's a center that played for the Barry Colts at the end of the year. Uh, he was originally the second overall pick in the OHL priority draft uh, two years ago. The same year Quentin Byfield went first overall, and he went to Flint. Um, the big problem for him was he never really seemed to find a spot with that Flint team. And, and it kind of follows the same theme that I was talking about with Dylan Peterson is he early in the year, he was kind of buried on that team in the bottom six. And he's a high skill, high energy guy. And he's a, a really skilled playmaker. He needs a guy that can really finish the puck. And we, we got a glimpse of what he could do with a guy that can do that. When he got traded to Barry halfway through the season, he, he got on a line with Tyson Forrester and the two of them started destroying worlds. Um, I think Evan Veerling is a really big reason why Tyson Forrester's draft stock rose in the second half of the season, because I think Tyson Forrester's a really good power play threat. And I, I think his shot is, is legit. Like that, that shot alone might make him a paycheck in the NHL one day, but Evan Veerling's the guy that, that unlocked it. Evan Veerling's the guy that really drove play and his speed is skating everything. He's a really good player that I think if you can get him in the second, third round, He'd be a steal. And on our rankings at Dauber Prospects, we actually, like I said, we're just releasing them. And he's at 77 on our ranking. So he's right in that range where Colorado will be picking in the third round. 
So I actually had a question about that. So this draft people have been talking about, and I'm glad that you brought up these players that could go in the second and third round and be, uh, you know, players in the NHL and earn a paycheck in the NHL. We just saw the Tampa Bay Lightning win the Stanley Cup. Victor Hedman obviously was a second overall draft pick. He won the Conn Smythe, and he just barely beat out a guy in Braden Point who was taken 79th overall in 2014. The Avalanche are picking 75th overall, and we're hearing a lot about this draft being not necessarily top-heavy, but ultimately a deep draft. And I'm not going to pretend I knew that before this. You just told me that before we started recording. So with the Avalanche picking at 75th, how reasonable of an opportunity is it? How reasonable of a chance is it for them to end up with a player that could be not just an NHLer, but a very valuable NHLer? Once you answer that, I do have a follow-up to that. So I think that's the beauty of the depth of this draft is that it's not necessarily a deep draft that goes right to 80 or 100 that has guys that are, are surefire NHLers. But once you get into that 25 to 80 range, 25 to 60 range, you get a lot of guys that have a ton of upside but have some pretty clear red flag, red flags. Or you get a guy that you're like, well, this guy is probably going to be an NHLer, but he's going to be a fourth liner. So I think there's a lot of players that – in Dylan Peterson and in Evan Veerling are, are two guys that I brought up that I think could both be that. They could both be better than what they are at the junior level. And, and there's a few other guys too. Like if they, if they decide to go with a defenseman like Anton Johansson, who's a smaller defenseman, plays in the Swiss – or the Swedish Super Elite League, and – he dealt with injuries a lot over the last two years. If, if I'm not mistaken, he had a leg injury last year, and this year he he had a, an ankle or a back injury. But whenever he's been on the ice, he's been the absolute best Swedish defenseman in this draft class. Uh, better than Helga Granz, better than William Wallander or Emil Andre. The problem is he's a little bit smaller and he gets hurt a lot. So, but the upside is just ridiculous with this kid. His, his on-ice metrics are... are bonkers like if he played a full season he could have put up numbers that are comparable to some of the better Swedish defensemen offensively that have come through the draft so I think he's a guy that again like you there's a lot of guys in this range Dmitry of Chinnikov's another guy a Russian forward he's a good size center if I'm not mistaken he's six foot one but the problem is he's pretty thin uh so he's six foot and he's he's 161 so he's got that really frail frame but He's a guy that plays really high-end offensive hockey. And again, he plays in the MHL, which is the Russian Junior League, which isn't always conducive for defense. But, I mean, the, the talent is there in this draft, and, and it's going to be up to these teams to develop them. And I think this is the exact draft that you go into the draft and you're like, you know what, I could get a guy in the third round. I could get in the guy even in the early fourth round. That could be something. But we got to put our development staff to the work, and we got to really rely on, on that. So... I think a team like Toronto or a team like Pittsburgh, who's historically found gems late in the draft, or like you said, these other guys like Braden Point, there's going to be opportunities to draft high-end players outside of the first round. It's just going to be up to the teams on, on how they develop them. Sweet. And I mean, on that point, obviously the value of a draft pick drops off a lot. Not just when you go round by round, but even within the first round. Somebody that's taken within the top 10. I mean, the, the the value of a top 10 draft pick or a top three compared to a top 10, compared to a top 20, and then it sort of trails off from there. So, you know, just to give a couple of examples, the Tampa Bay Lightning traded a first round draft pick, their first round draft pick, to the San Jose Sharks for Barclay Goudreau and a third. And everybody said, holy crap, what are you doing? And then you look at it now, considering they've won the Stanley Cup. The San Jose Sharks' third-round draft pick is going to be in the early 60s. The Lightning's first-rounder is going to be 31st overall. So you ultimately traded down 
or yeah, traded down 34 spots, let's say, and you get out of it a Barclay Goudreau, who is a serviceable player, who was able to give you that depth and is under contract for another year at a very low cost, which is why the Lightning acquired guys like him and Blake Coleman. It's because they have that longer contract. So it seems like it was a worthy trade, even though in the grand scheme of things, it looks like you traded Goudreau for a first. The point, the reason why I'm asking this question is because how do you assess the value of a draft pick? And I ask that because the Toronto Maple Leafs, you know, they were part of that Vegas and Chicago trade for Robin Leonard where they came in and it was a weird uh, total cap circumvention and the fact that Toronto can flex their money muscles, which I'm all for because they should be able to do that because they're a team that makes a lot of money. They acquired Robin Leonard from the Blackhawks. They paid him $180,000. They acquired a fifth-round draft pick, and then they flipped Leonard to the Vegas Golden Knights. People don't realize that that was a three-team trade. Robin Leonard's trade from Chicago to Vegas actually went through Toronto. So ultimately what Toronto did was say, here's $180,000 cash. Give us a fifth-round draft pick. Just a couple days ago, the Red Wings traded future considerations for Mark Stahl and a second-round draft pick. Steve Eisenman loves his seconds. When he was in Tampa Bay, he had three or four second-round draft picks in three draft years, I believe, and it was consecutive years, if I'm not mistaken. Mark Stahl this year, he already had his $1 million signing bonus paid out. His base salary is $3.2 million. Considering the Rangers are probably going to be a middle-of-the-pack team next year, who knows? That's probably going to be around a pick 45th to 50th overall. The Red Wings and the Illich family said, here's $3.2 million dollars let's buy ourselves a second round draft pick. How do you assess the value of a draft pick? And and do you think moves like this, or to a lesser extent, Toronto paying $180,000 for a fifth round draft pick, do you think those kind of moves make sense? And do you think that more teams should be doing things like that to sort of flex their cap muscles and say, we have cap space like the Red Wings. Let's go out and trade for Mark Stahl and acquire a second round draft pick and pay money for that draft pick ultimately. I think it's a great idea. Honestly, I, I think w- when you're looking at it realistically, these picks are, are kind of a, a dime a dozen and you, you can just gamble on them. That's what they are. They're, they're a roll of the dice a lot of times, especially like you said, once you get beyond 20, I think it was Michael Shuckers who did a, a study where he has a, a chart out that, that kind of really displays the value of each pick. And in the value starts up, up near a thousand at the first overall pick. And by the time you get down to the 20th pick, it's, I want to say it's about 400. Like it's a drastic, drastic drop off. And then it just continues dropping off after that. But that drop off at the start is is real and it's 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 big. This year's draft, I don't know if it has that as big a drop off personally, but that drop off is there. Like, there's no doubt about it. That once you get to the second third round, that the pick isn't worth as much. So I think when you're a rebuilding team, you you're you should be more than willing to buy those picks. Um, when you're Detroit, you should be more than willing to be like, you know what, we're gonna take Mark Stahl. Look at our defensive core. He's probably better than at least one of them whether it's Madison Bowie or, or you're just replacing Jonathan Erickson's contract, basically. And, and you get that second-round pick because that second-round pick can turn into a guy like like one of the guys we were talking about earlier with with um, uh, Dylan Peterson, or, or it can turn into a, a different guy like maybe a Tyler Tulio or a John Luke Foodie who who have a lot of upside. So if, if I'm a rebuilding team, I'm taking as many rolls of the dice as I can. And if, I, if my team is more than willing to pay, if my owner is more than willing to pay, I'm going to be dealing for as many of those picks as I can and taking on as many bad contracts as I can because what, what's Detroit really going to do next year other than lose? So it, it makes total sense in that regard. As for the Toronto situation, that was really unique. I, I don't even know 
why they did it really uh, outside of getting that first round pick. Um, I know they retained some salary too, which helped Vegas, but it was a, it was a weird one. And the fifth round pick was just kind of a throw in. Like you said, it was $180,000. They basically paid to Leonard and, and then they, they t- took the pick. I'm not going to be opposed to it. I mean, let them circumvent the cap all they want. They're, they're the richest team in the league. So um, I, I think if, if I'm a rebuilding team, I, I value picks in the top three rounds big time. If I'm a tr- team like Toronto or, or Colorado, I'm not valuing those picks as much because I don't need them as much. And if I can trade a, a second round pick for a good player, then, then I'm more than willing to do that. You know, and it's interesting you said that the the Toronto retained cap because that's what they did. They retained half of Robin Leonard's salary. So it ultimately it was a favor for Vegas to be able to acquire him and fit him under the cap because Toronto had that extra cap space. So they retain, retained that, that half that salary. But obviously because it was at the trade deadline and you're only taking a portion of the salary, uh, it was only $180,000 that they ended up paying rather than $2.4 or $2.5 or whatever it was. But that's the thing. You, you you did a favor for Vegas and paid this much money for a fifth round draft pick, basically hoping to roll a dice and you know roll a six three times in a row and get something out of it. And then you helped out another team. It just it seemed like a unique and very curious situation. Um, but yeah, no, that, I mean that makes a lot of sense about the value of a draft pick. And I, I'm just glad I, I you know you were, you're able to put sort of uh, you know words to how how valuable these picks are and how. A lot of teams and not just teams, but, you know, fans and, you know, Twitter followers and people that like a certain team overvalue a draft pick when oftentimes it's not really as valuable as you may think. Yeah. And, and that's just it. Like like you said, with the Barkley Gujo trade, most times a 31st overall pick isn't going to work out. You're going to get it maybe maybe an NHLer, maybe a good AHLer, or maybe it's a European guy that never even comes over. So if you're a team like Tampa Bay and you and you're you know you're on the precipice, you're ready to win the cup, trade that first round first round pick because worst case you get eliminated in the first round. And in most years, because you're a division winner, like you said, unless it's a pandemic year, you're gonna get a, a late a mid twenties pick. So I don't know. To me, that's worth trading for a guy like Barkley Goudreau if you think he's truly the missing piece to your team. And if it works out, you look like a genius. Tony, last one from me, and this one is coming right off the uh, tail end of the news that the New York Rangers are planning on buying out Henrik Lundqvist, and it wouldn't be a Hockey Mountain High podcast if we don't talk goalies. So I just want a list of uh, a couple of your favorite goalies. Are there any that are probably going in the first round? And if not, yeah, just a couple that that stand out to you as as somebody who can really make an impact. Well, Yaroslav Askarov's the Russian goalie that everyone's kind of been hyping up this year. I've been super high on him. I've kind of pushed him into the top 10 of my own rankings. Um, I, I probably have him as realistically my eighth best prospect because I'm always willing to bet a little bit more on upside than a lot of people. And thankfully I'm not an NHL team and I don't have to actually make that bet. But, um, I think he's a guy that realistically could be a pro ready in two years. Like he could be in the NHL in two years. Wow. He's already, he's already playing really high level hockey in the KHL, the second best league in the world. Um, he won goalie of the week in the first week of the le- the season this year with a, yep. a 974 save percentage or something ridiculous like that. Um, I think this kid's in the NHL just as quickly as, as most eighth overall picks or most 10th overall picks. So I, I'm, I'm drafting him in the top 10 every day of the week. Uh, as for other goalies though, I, I'm a big fan of Drew Camesso from the, from the national team program. He's, he's really smart. He likes, he tracks the play really, really well. And, and the thing that really turned me on to him is he, he had better numbers than Spencer Knight did last year. And Spencer Knight had a better team. Um, I, I don't think there was much of a doubt about that. And Spencer Knight got a lot more hype. 
uh, Drew Camesso just kind of went, went about his work, did what he did. And I was talking to him after a game one time and I, I brought up a goal and he, he kind of replayed it back in his head. And the amount of detail he was able to describe the play into me was like more than I actually remembered. So I actually ended up going home and watching the goal again. And I'm like, oh, there was that guy on the backside. That I didn't notice that he was kind of cheating towards. And he admitted towards cheating to the guy. And he's like, that's not a play I normally make. But I felt like he was the bigger shooting threat. So and he, and he just went into detail. So I'm a big fan of him. But Joel Bloomfist is the Swedish goaltender that I think he's probably going to be the second guy off the board. Um, he's a big boy. He's got good size. And he, he's so quick laterally. He's so well-structured. Um, in any, in any other year, he'd be the top goaltender, I think, but Yaroslav Askarov, uh, a borderline generational talent as a goalie. You know, and it's, uh, that, that actually, you know, makes me think of a question that I kind of want to ask that I thought about asking earlier is someone like Askarov, correct me if I'm wrong. Is he playing on a stacked lineup or is he ultimately the one that's driving that success in the, in the KHL? I mean, he's playing on a good team. There, there's no doubt about that. But he's also making a lot of saves. Like Russian hockey is, is pretty willy-nilly at times, and his team likes to to really kind of push the pace offensively, which at times leaves their goalie hanging. And, and he's done a really good job of dealing with that and and ma- putting up big saves. And I don't I don't know how many times I've watched him play this year, a couple times now, and he's he's always seemed to have three four breakaways a game that he's having to stop. And he does a really good job of stopping those plays. Like he's excellent under pressure. Um, he crushed that uh, 2001 born uh, under 18 US team his heart at the world under 18s a couple of years ago and he's just always dominating every international tournament he's been in basically except for the world juniors where he was two years younger than everyone else so I, I don't fault him for the world juniors like some people do but this kid's a stud I, I think he's going to be in the NHL pretty quickly all right so that actually brings me to the actual question that I have so Obviously, this isn't the same kind of goalie. You're talking about a goalie that's really going to be a generational goalie. But I remember one year, Zachary Fakali was taking high in the second round. He played for the Halifax Mooses. Was that the year that McKinnon and Druen were on that team? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Okay. So Zachary Fakali was the highest goalie taken that year, and he was taken by the Canadians, and it was considered to be this pick that was going to be a slam dunk. It ultimately wasn't. So this kind of brings me back to the Dylan Holloway conversation we were having playing for Wisconsin under Tony Granato. You have these players where this these years of their development, the 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old years are so important and so vital. So you look at someone like Dylan Holloway, and it's not only the fact that you know maybe you have to question if he's the player that had the terrible season with Wisconsin because Wisconsin had a terrible season or if he's the player that's better than that. But at the same time, are you willing to draft him and sort of waste away his 18 and 19 year old years playing for an organization that might not be good which is why a lot of teams are ultimately attracted to the london knights and and where kadri and Taveras came from because the, the the hunter family just has that organization down solid so i guess the question is how much value and how hard is it to predict a player's future if it's somebody let's say like a zachary Fukali who was played on a stacked lineup or you know, Jonathan Drouin, who played on a line with Nathan McKinnon, didn't turn out to be this, the guy anybody, everybody thought he would be compared to someone like Dylan Holloway or even someone like Bowen Byram, who started off the season with the Vancouver Giants and they just were not a good team. How do you gauge somebody and say he just played for a bad team compared to he was carried by a very good team? Well, one of the things that I, I've really tried to do this year for was kind of try to eliminate that a little bit from my evaluations. And I look at him and, and there's a lot of times, like I said, I have I have a little bit more access to video than some people do. And 
and I'm able to kind of stop and pause pause plays as they're happening, especially when I'm watching games afterwards. And and that's what I do a lot of times. I watch them after the fact. And, and the fact with with Dylan Holloway is a lot of times I, I look and I'm watching a play develop, and I'll just pause it and I'll be like, all right, what's he supposed to do, and what's everyone else supposed to be doing on the ice? And then I'll hit play. He does what he's supposed to do, and everyone else is kind of just running around with their heads cut off like a chicken. So I I think that's one way to do it. Another way to kind of do it is is watch that's what i value with the best on best tournaments and a guy like william wallander was a perfect example of that this year a swedish defenseman got good size good skating when he played for the junior team in moto um in the super elite he he was pretty terrible defensively like that team had no structure they were kind of all over the place and they didn't really settle into any defensive structure but he got a promotion to the men's team in the shl and he looked a lot better despite the the drastic jump in competition he was a better player at the men's level. And that was just due to the fact that he had some structure around him to do what he was expecting them to do. So if he was trying to send a pass behind the net to his defensive partner, he knows he's going to be there. Whereas so many times with the junior team, he'd get a pass in the corner and he'd go to send it to the, to the other side and there'd be no one there. And he's just giving the puck up. And so there was a lot of plays like that where you look and you're like, ah, maybe his IQ is not there. And then you, you see him play at the, the SHL level, the men's level, and he's excelling. And Helga Granz is another guy like that. And, I think Dylan Holloway is a guy that if I draft him, I'm getting him out of that situation as quickly as possible. If, yeah. if I draft him, he's going to be a guy that I'm like, well, you know what? You have to play one more year in, in college. So do that. And then you're playing in the AHL after that. I, I don't care if you want to go to school, we'll pay for your school here, whatever it takes. Like you got to get out of that situation and get in a better structured situation. That is Tony Ferrari of DauberProspect.com and host of the Dauber Draftcast. I definitely feel a lot more prepared for the NHL draft than I did before. Yep. I'm sure we could, especially you, Arif, could sit here and talk to you for, for, for what, four more hours to I, Tony. I could go on forever. The only reason why we're wrapping this up is because I'm looking at that clock and I'm saying, how many people are going to be nerds like us and <laughs> listen to this whole thing? The funny thing is, every time I say that, people just send us messages and say, make them longer. We love it. Yeah, but uh, uh, other than that, sorry, yeah. Tony, to cut you off real quick. But, yeah, what, uh, like I do with Arif before we get out of every podcast, is there anything else you wanted to get off your chest that maybe we didn't ask you um, here in this in this uh, recording? No, I, I think you guys did a really good job. You guys are just trying to get informed, and I get that. And there, We went over a lot of prospects today, so I'm, I'm not going to try to dive into anything else. But as for the, the long podcast, I know what you mean. We, we we did that scouting meeting, we recorded it, and I edited it down to about three hours, so it's not the quite full oh, four hours. But we're releasing that as a podcast because people seem like every time we release an hour-long podcast and we go a little longer, people were like, no, do longer, do longer. So that'll be out tomorrow as well with the rankings, um, the same time this is released probably. So you'll be able to check all that stuff out. But other than that, I, I just appreciate you guys having me on. It was a lot of fun. Always enjoy talking to you, Arif. Yeah, absolutely, Tony. And it's funny that you said that, you know, about the longer podcast because – you know, I, I'm a total podcast geek. Everybody knows this. It's why I want to, you know, hopefully one day be one of the best at this is because I grew up listening to the Merrick versus Wyshynski and the Puck Soup and the Steve Dangle podcast and uh, Biscuits when it was Dave Lozo and, and Sean McIndoe and listening to all these podcasts. And I'll use the Steve Dangle podcast, for example, when they release a new episode and it's only, and I use the word only, an hour and 30, hour and 40 minutes. I'm like, come on, man. You gave me two and a half hours of, of content last week and now you're cutting it down to 90 minutes like what are you doing and then I record it and I'm like oh this is getting too long and then I realized that people like me that love those long podcasts really want that content and you know we couldn't have been we, there was no way that JJ and I were recording 74 minutes about the draft there was no way that we were recording 14 minutes about this draft without having you on uh, so I'm gonna let JJ wrap it up but you know I do appreciate having you on 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he saved me hours and hours of doing research. Yeah. Now, now I definitely do feel a lot more prepared. It makes us look smart without having to do the work. I, absolutely. I sat here, really just put my feet up and listened to you guys talk. So I, I loved it. But Tony, why don't we bring you on again after the draft, kind of analyze what the Avalanche did and, and who they picked up. And you can really break down for all our listeners, you know, the, the new riches that they'll have after the draft. Yeah, I'm happy to come on again, guys. Yeah, and I and I appreciate that. And we can also get into this this deep prospect pool that the Avalanche suddenly have with the new hooks and uh, and uh, Bowen Byram and and uh, Justice Anunin and and Shamil Shamakov. That's the big Russian goalie that oh. plays in the KHL Division Two league that I was talking about earlier. And uh, you know, just discussing this riches that has become the Avalanche prospect pool and who they add to it this year. Yeah, so on that note, why don't we get to the Mile High Sports Three Stars of the Week brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. And I'm going to feel like I'm talking about an R&B group here, but we're going Tony, Tony, Tony. And yeah, you know, but just before we, we, we close it out, JJ was about to say the final words. Uh, I just want to say, you know, I, I like I said, I met Tony at the, at the World Junior Summer Showcase uh, summer 2019, right before I moved out here, was my first tiptoe into, you know, having a credential and doing something big and... I remember when he walked up to me, we were downstairs in the hallway waiting for Lafreniere to come out so we can talk to him. And I have a picture of that. It was a really cool time. And uh, I talked to Sampo Ranta as well, the avalanche prospect. And I talked to Bowen Byram that day. But this guy walks up to me and goes, hey, I, I, I think I follow you on Twitter. And I said, cool, what's your name? And he said, Tony Ferrari. And I was like, yes, I, you know, I, I don't follow a, a lot of, let's call them random people on Twitter. I usually follow the guys with the blue check mark that we know, but something about his account really stuck out to me was the fact that he had this passion for for what he did, even though he was just this random Joe Schmo like I am a random Joe Schmo without the blue check mark that's just trying to make it in this industry and when I saw him that day it kind of stuck out to me like this kid is really cool because, you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm 27, but at the same time it 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 kind of you know, even though you're doing this in a far different way than I am, I'm I'm trying to be a beat reporter, hopefully a broadcaster. You're out here trying to to do to you know to make your way into the NHL, working on a front office staff, working in in, in uh, and and doing something related to prospects and player development. It kind of like you know what really attracted me to this guy's work was the fact that it reminded me of myself in the sense where we're really nothing right now and we're trying to make a name for ourselves, and it is hard as hell. Uh, I know Tony can tell you that. I can tell you that. He's out here, you know, uh, donating his time to us, basically, so that we can feel like we have somebody on here that's a pro at what he does. Uh, you know, I'd be happy to come on to his podcast one day and talk about literally nothing because I know nothing about prospects. But it, it, it really stuck out to me, Tony, because you have that passion and that drive. And I saw a lot of what I'm trying to do in you. And, uh, you know, one day in 20, 30, 40 years from now with, you know, JJ sitting by my side, passing me stacks of $100 bills because he's out here on DraftKings hitting 10, 10 team parlays and betting more than a dollar on them. You know, I'm probably going to see you in a front office one day. I'm probably going to see you in a press box one day. And you're going to be someone that has his name next to an NHL team as a, as a scout. And I might be someone who's working in a bigger role than I am now. And it's just kind of these are those starting spots that really lead to that. And, you know, I just can't say enough. And it sounds like I'm totally kissing ass because I am. But I just can't say enough about how much I appreciate you, Bruno, giving us this time, giving us nearly 80 minutes of podcast talk about something that I would never be able to drop myself. And, uh, you know, it's it's something that we always are going to pay forward and I'll pay it forward one day. And, you know, I'll be able to repay you, you know, one day for doing that for us. 
Uh, but I just wanted to give you that shout out because you know we really appreciate this, and this is this is a damn good podcast, and I think it's going to do really well. No, I, I appreciate the kind words, Arif. And funny enough, I'm also 27. That was also one of my first really big credential nice. events as well. So, I mean, it, maybe it was destiny. It was, it was just, you know, it, it was a good time to meet a good friend. And I, I appreciate the friendship and the, the relationship we built. And when I do get into that front office and you're one of the big beat reporters, I'll make sure I leak all the information to you. Uh, that's literally what I was trying to get to. So I really appreciate that because I do need an in on all that. I have a picture of myself at the USA Hockey Arena wearing my credentials my first time taking a picture like that and just being happy as hell and I posted it on Instagram and all my friends are like look at you living your dream shout out Tony for the photo credit he took that photo for me oh you love to flex we know you love to flex on him you said let me see how many junior leagues I can name right now OHL BCHL you did that then you said how many podcasts can I name off the top of my head puck soup biscuits blah blah, blah. I, how many players did i talk to that day lafreniere this guy this guy oh we know you like to flex Eric. oh that's and, and you follow me on instagram tony i don't think you follow me on instagram but that's all i do is flex my work every time i ask a player a question i post it up there but you know what i'm proud of what i'm doing and uh as a as, as a canadian i i'm very 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 proud of my hockey nerdiness and that's why i'm here somewhere in denver colorado talking about hockey and talking about the avalanche and talking about it with someone that sounds like kevin bxa because he's got that canadian accent down pat that i've lost quite a bit of since moving away from toronto 16 years ago you know i just i try to provide as much as i can and i mean when i took the photo for earth we only had like seven or eight different photos that he had to choose from so it wasn't even that bad (laughs) (laughs) i I had to pick the best one out of the bunch but But yeah other than that i will let you get back to what you were saying to wrap this baby up yeah i mean i loved all the aboots and all the oots so that being said for Arif, I'm JJ. Hockey's for everyone, and we oot you. Yeah,